0: Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. I know some of you have been following along every week, so you may have noticed that we were on a little bit of a break, but I promise this is worth the wait. This is officially the episode where we are going the farthest across the globe so far for this particular story, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to my friend Mary and really let you see a kind of a lifestyle that's probably very different from many of you from wherever you're listening from. And so with that, we're going to we're going to jump in and Mary, I was hoping you could introduce yourself just sort of briefly to start off with to our listeners and tell them, you
1: know, where where you live. <laughs> so my name is Mary Grimm. And I am a missionary in Papua New Guinea with my husband and our three children. And we live in a rural area of the Sepik province of Papua New Guinea, which means that we are four and a half hours by motorized boat from where the road ends up the Sepik River. And it is an adventure every day living here and working here. I am a literacy consultant and a translator on paper. Uh, Right now, I'm working with our villages to build an adult learning center, so I'm not actually doing as much of the literacy and translation work as I generally am doing, but that's my my job on paper.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's just incredible. I know there's so many of us that have never experienced anything like what you're doing, Just to sort of paint a picture, I was hoping you could maybe just take us through kind of a day in the life of Mary Grimm and her family and (laughs) what that's like with just just your daily life as a wife and a mom, but also your work life, just the service that you're doing for God.
1: Okay, well, I'll share one of my favorite new favorite day in the life stories. Uh, This was back before our son Isaac was born. He was born this year. And I was in the village with our family. Benjamin had taken our younger daughter with him to go down and sit in the local church to screen patients to take them down to the nearest clinic, which is about an hour and a half away from our village. So he was down there seeing who needed to go the next day. And so I had Joya with me, and my work that day took me to the next village over, which is about mile and a half to 2 mile walk through a sago swamp. And so we packed up for the day, brought some crackers and peanut butter and coconut with us and uh tracked down through the swamp with my friend Jesse who is my kind of right-hand man when it comes to literacy work. And so he and I trekked through the swamp and kind of traded off handing Joya back and forth across the really sloppy bits. There's a couple of places where you have to cross over some really sketchy log bridges that aren't very safe. And when we were about halfway to our destination, we were in the middle of a pit pit swamp. I don't know if anybody knows what pit pit is. It looks a lot like the papyrus you see in pictures of like Egyptian hieroglyphs and stuff. It's a reed that grows along the river and is sweet kind of like sugarcane. Anyway. There's this huge pit pit swamp where the pit pit is mashed down and there's channels of water through it. And all these guys were out there hunting for a crocodile. And we thought that was pretty neat, but we had to settle on over to Kumbawe, the next village over, to get our work done. We got over there and we had a great literacy meeting. We had some folks who had made some illustrations. We had some folks who had collected some stories, just local fun stories about crocodile hunts or catching couscous or pig hunts or a big, big part of local story themes. And then on our, on our way home, one of our literacy guys pulled out his guitar as we were leaving. And I was like, Oh, hey, are you going to play some of the talk place songs? And talk place is the, pigeon term for local language. And he goes, well, I guess I could. And so that turned into sort of an ad hoc language time slash worship time, because a lot of the songs that he was practicing were Christian songs. And that was a lot of fun. And then we ended up coming back through the swamp as they were narrowing down the chase on the, on the crocodile, the mungor. Mungor is the Yamana word for for crocodile. And it's hard for me to remember to say crocodile and not say mungor. Anyway, all all of the guys were in kind of this circle of spears and, and guys walking, kind of jabbing into the the reeds as they went, and they cornered the crocodile and pulled her out, and Joya was there, and I was like, oh man, my little three-year-old, I hope she's not being traumatized by watching them, you know, crack this crocodile over the skull with a bush knife. Um, but it was exciting. And then after the hunt, after they'd finished and caught the crocodile, they all had this kind of like, woo-ha-ha moment where (laughs) they were celebrating the catch. And after that, we left their celebration and headed on home. Joanne and I stopped to swim in a waterfall, and after that, she didn't put her shoes back on, and she ended up getting sago spines in her feet. Sago is the local palm tree that they cut down and mash into food, uh, kind of a flowery pulp that they then make into a gel that people eat. We call it sago, sock-sock. In our language, they call it knock. And it's one of the big starch staples. Anyway, the sagos have these cactus-like spines on the outside of the tree. And poor Joy, I got a bunch of those stuck in her feet when she was walking. So that evening, I'm sitting there pulling out cactus spines, sago spines from my kid's foot as I'm watching the sunset over the sea and telling Ben about the crocodile hunt and just thinking that this life that we live is really different than anything that I had experienced in the US. No no kidding. Yeah,
0: I I imagine the majority of our listeners uh, have probably not experienced uh, any of that (laughs) in any way, shape or form. So, you know, I, I think sometimes people can hear stories like that and think, wow, that's an amazing adventure. I would like that. And others are listening going, are you crazy? Why, why are you living like this? And, you know, everyone looks at it from a different perspective. So I'm sort of hoping now that we can go back sort of to the beginning of your story and watch how God wrote each chapter that eventually led you into a completely different life than, than really the life you started with.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, one of the things I was thinking about as, as I was thinking about what to share and, and how to share was just over and over again as we've been here, we've talked about how happy we are to be here, how much we're thriving in this space. And for me especially, living on the edge of the wild like we do, and that's really the best way I, I can put it, I I love it. I love Being as close to camping as you can get without actually camping and being in the jungle with, you know, waking up to parrots and birds and cockatoos and and hornbills outside the, the back door there. But it is something where even though my life in the U.S. never looked like that, I have been conditioned for it or trained for it almost all my life, I think. So I was just thinking through. The chapters of my life, and of course, it starts out with you know being born. I was born in California, Sacramento, and shortly after I was born, my parents moved down to Utah. At the time, my mother was, well, both my parents were in the Mormon Church. My mother was a fourth generation LDS, and my dad had become Mormon in order to marry her. And we moved to Utah to be closer to my grandparents. And as a kid, my first. of experience meeting God was uh, outside of the Mormon church. There was an old man who used to share pamphlets with kids. They were just pictures of Jesus, Jesus hanging out with little kids and they had little short verses and things on them and essentially just continuing to reiterate, God loves you. Jesus loves you. And as a kid, I remember this man just having this glow around him. And that was my first concept of who God was was that glow around this man who just continually shared the love of Christ with the children going into the church. And as I got a little older, my concept of God continued to grow. My parents were both believers. They both met Jesus. My dad had met Jesus in the Mormon church. My mom had met Jesus when she was 18, uh, going to college um, at BYU University. And She and my dad both made reading the Word of God, the Old and New Testament, a common practice in our home. And they were also, as we were growing up, piecing through their, their own faith and their own life in the church and working through their, you know, what the Bible actually teaches. And eventually, God's Spirit led them out of the Mormon Church. So as a kid, there was Active dialogue about faith going on around me. And I picked up on a lot of that. So I kind of my, my first encounter with God, my first time meeting him was when I was a little kid. I think I was probably six and I had done something wrong and I had a really hyper, hyperactive conscience. And I went to my dad and I confessed and I was like, dad, are you going to spank me? And I was crying and my dad just scooped me up in his arms and said, Mary, I love you. And when he said that, there was this little light bulb that went on, and I heard God's voice saying that to me, and I was just ecstatic. I was so shocked that God would talk to me and that he talks, and and just so excited that he loves me. And so that was, that day, I remember just like running around singing, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, because God had spoken to me and told me that he loved me. And so that was my first introduction to God. And as I got a little older, I kept on paying attention to my parents' dialogue about faith. And one time my mom was uh, sharing her story, her testimony with a woman, and I was hiding behind the couch listening in. And one of the things that she talked about was having a peace about something. And when I heard her say that, I thought to myself, little you know, seven-year-old, eight-year-old me, I was like, peace, that sounds like a really great thing. God, should I have peace? And this was kind of the second time that God spoke very directly to me in my life. He said, yes, I can give you peace, but you need to give me your whole life. And for this split second, I had an understanding as a little kid of what my whole life meant. Like I saw it stretched out before me. And I freaked out. I thought that was a whole lot to promise to anybody, and I said no. And after that encounter, I ceased to have any kind of peace. I became a very turbulent, very emotional kid. And I remember my dad, my dad just sitting down with me and being like, "Mary, why are you crying so much?" And me just being like, "I don't know," because I didn't know how to talk with him about my faith and about what was going on. And during this whole time, my parents were going through a faith crisis as well. They were working through their life in the Mormon Church and uh, deciding that they needed to leave, that they felt that there were many things that the Mormon Church was teaching that was not, were not correct, were not right. And, um, and so they ended up leaving, and we moved about that time up to Oregon, not because we were persecuted or anything, but just because it was very, very painful being so close to our family and My grandparents were just heartbroken that my folks would leave it to them. It seemed like they were leaving their faith in God, and we moved to Oregon partly because they just needed space as as a family and as a couple to figure out what this whole shift in faith and in our you know, where we went to church meant for our family. And so that's why we moved. And Oregon was a whole nother kind of the start of a new chapter for me. In the Mormon church, I had gotten baptized when I was eight, all the all kids do. And I had thought that would kind of be the end of this struggling with God about giving my life to him, but it wasn't. And I was disappointed. And then when we started going to uh, Christian churches, we started going to a friend's church. It was the first church that we attended. And that was crazy coming out of the Mormon church. Just modern worship music was, to us, so full of joy and so just like, I don't know, crazy, awesome. It's interesting that in the Christian church, one, there's so many churches. And for us, it was a little weird leaving the Mormon church, which has so much cohesion and so much continuity for for anybody who's in inside of that community. And then going into the Christian community, which was the absolute opposite, there are all these churches, all these different denominations, they don't talk with each other, they don't work with each other, and everybody's got like their corner on the market of theology. And it was, it was really bizarre for us, you know, but one of the things that kind of stuck with me as a child through that experience of going to different churches and leaving the Mormon church was just the, the solidity of God and his word that that was always there. That was always the anchor for our whole family. And that was what my parents, you know, that was consistent in our home. We read the Old and the New Testament together. And no matter where we went, God is God and his spirit is his spirit. And that's what my parents were looking for. And that's what we we learned to look for in the churches, in wherever we went, was that that resonance of the spirit. Oh, and uh, I was homeschooled all my life through 18 years old and loved it. And I love and respect my mom for the amazing work that she put into that. And that for me, that that was an amazing opportunity that was gifted to me and very formational for just who I am as a person, thinking a little outside the box sometimes and being who I am. You know, what a testimony and
0: shout out to your parents for really modeling how to listen to God. And mm-hmm. I know that the decisions that they made were not easy ones. I mean when when your whole family, especially for your mom for generations has had, you know, been a part of one community or w- with one, you know, church or religion or something and and you're going a different path, that can be really challenging. And it can be really turbulent within family relationships. And yeah. for them to really be focused on following God, no matter how tough it is, or no matter how painful that may have been with certain relationships, they were listening, and they were seeking and seemed to model that for you. And just, yeah. I think, I think that's amazing. And, you know, wh- one of our hopes is to get your mom's story on here as well. <laughs> and. And for all the moms out there who are trying to navigate homeschooling in this crazy 2020 year, we just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just know that you are appreciated and you are valued and you might be doing something that feels really hard right now, but those those challenges are not in vain. So I yeah, appreciate you mentioning that about your mom.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thank you for, for kind of talking about that a little bit. I mean, she is one of my heroes, truly. And I know, like, people say that, like... But, I mean, the, the image of my mom standing up in the Mormon church and testifying about the Holy Spirit has been ingrained in my, in my mind from when it happened. It's, it's one of those images that just stays with me of a woman choosing what, is, what she knows is true and standing up against, I mean, everything that she had known all of her life. Like in that moment, she kind of tossed it all and just said, you know what, God, I'm going with you. And, um, watching my mom do that has stuck with me as just this testimony to strength and to faith and has been a reminder to me all my life to choose God, to choose what, to choose what's true even when it's hard. So, yeah, she, she's definitely one of my heroes. Yeah, I wanted to just shout out that she, gave so much of her life to educate myself and my siblings I'm one of five I guess that's probably another kind of crucial aspect of my story that I am the middle child of five and that my parents going through that whole season in their life it was with five kids in tow which is a whole other thing as we as we navigated all of that I was in my own little world of turmoil and um that all kind of came to a head when I was 13 and I, to this day, I do not know how I ended up on my knees praying with my pastor, my youth pastor's wife. Um, I, I was an extremely introverted child and I never, never engaged other people in dialogue myself. And so I have no idea how I ended up there on my knees just saying, okay, God, you win. I'm done fighting you. I went home And I was just exhausted. I was, you know, when you've been fighting a long fight and you're done, I was just like that long, deep breath after the fight where I was just like, okay, God, we're on the same side now. This is good. That was, so that was when I was about 13. And that was where my life kind of took a, took a turn from turmoil to direction, passion, calling right after my, Conversion right mm-hmm. after that time when I finally surrendered my life to God. My church had a mission trip down to Mexico for a week and I went down with them. It was the first time in my life that I was right in my own skin and I felt so peaceful and so joyful and going down and serving and being in a, in a third world country, I, I loved every minute of it. And there was a man who came and spoke at that. Short term mission trip, who talked about long term missions, and the minute he started talking about it, there's was like this bell ringing inside of me where I was like, "I know that's what I want to do with the rest of my life you know, so it's one of those things where a lot of people kind of knock short term mission trips, and I myself have looked at it and kind of weighed the the use of them. And truly, the use is for the people who go that they get to see something new and different, and there's an open space for God to speak there when you're kind of out of your depth at least for me there was when it was a really powerful space so when i came back from mexico i told my pastor i want to be a long-term missionary told my parents that summer i got baptized again into the christian church that summer was also the first time in my life where i had friends And it was an interesting time for me because I remember as a 14-year-old asking God and saying, God, I just, I want to have some friends. And God saying, again, you know, I will give you friends, but you need to know that I am your first friend. And that has been one of my names for him ever since that day. That has been something that he's brought back over and over again as we have journeyed through all of the ups and downs of life and the pain of life. God has reminded me you know just remember I'm your friend I am your first friend but that summer he gave me two really beautiful friends who have been my friends ever since and that was a great blessing for me and both of them have challenged and helped me to grow and helped me to learn so much anyway so that that was a really big chapter for me that time in my life 13 14 it's kind of my whole world just opening up to God and to friendship and the people and then um when I was 16, my pastor invited me to come with him and his family to Papua New Guinea. So this was kind of the next chapter of my life was not just the calling, but the more of the specifics of where God wanted me and what he wanted me to do. I went with my pastor and his wife, and it was for 10 days to PNG. We were in the Highlands, and I was technically just doing childcare. I ended up cooking in the kitchens most of the time because they didn't really need me for childcare. And during that time, I met a bunch of long-term missionaries, most of them Bible translators, because it was with New Tribes missions. And so that was a new concept for me, Bible translators. And initially, I dismissed it as being way beyond my depth. I was kind of like, okay, God, that's cool, but that's for smart people, and left it at that. And during that time, when I was 16 in PNG, the other thing that really just stood out for me was that God kind of pulled me aside at one point and reprimanded me for going, just kind of assuming that, okay, I want to do long-term missions. Here's an opportunity. I'll go. And God kind of sat me down and just said, you know what? You need to ask. You always need to ask. And I was like, oh, no, what have I done? I'm going to be cursed forever. And God was like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. I love you. I want you to be here, but you need to remember this, that even when you think you know what I want of you, that you always just ask. And uh, that has stuck with me all my life to just ask whenever I think I know the right way. And I'm, you know, kind of just going along my own track to stop and ask and just say, God, is this what you want? Anyway, so that was a really important life lesson for me. And then um, when I was 18, I ended up going back to PNG and uh, for the invitation of the chef there that I had worked with at that conference space. She and I had remained in communication and she invited me to come out for the summer and work. And so when I was 18, the day after I graduated, I got on a plane and headed to Papua New Guinea. I was there for three months, and that was a huge place, space, or just time a time of confirmation. And that's what I prayed for when I went, was, God, if this is what you want me to do, um, just make it really clear. And I was specifically praying about Bible translation, because even though I had written it off at 16, God had just kind of kept bringing it back and bringing it back. And for two years, I had not been able to forget about it. So when I went, I said, okay, God, you know, I don't think I have the brains for this. But if you want me to do it, I trust that you can give me what I need. And so just make it really, really clear. And I went back to the highlands. And during the time that I was there, I had the opportunity to fly in with a team of students to a village in the remote Pacific area. And I got to meet 200 new believers who had just listened to the gospel of Mark in their own language and were on fire for the Lord. And over and over again, over the course of the week that we were there, they shared with us just how much it meant to them to read the gospel, the story of Jesus in their own language, that they had heard it before. There had been other missionaries that had come, there's AOG Church and Catholic Church and... Um, different missionaries who had come and preached to them in talk pigeon which is the kind of meta language for the con- uh, country. But hearing it in their own talk place was so powerful for those people. While we were there and before we left, they prayed over us that God would not let us forget what we had seen and that he would send us back, not to them, but to other people in the world that needed to hear about Jesus. And that prayer has kind of rang in my ears ever since that day that what they spoke over us was really powerful, really prophetic. And every single one of the people I was with on that trip are now serving the Lord. Um, Not all of them overseas, but all of them in full service and full ministry. It's really neat to see that. So that was an impactful time for me, um, just having the confirmation of this calling, this thing that I was wondering, like, is this, am I really cut out for this? And seeing those people and hearing their stories, I was just like, okay, God, this, this means enough that even if I don't have what it takes, I'm willing to give you my whole life and let you just take it where you, where you want to take it. Um, to do this, to, to bring the word of God to people in their own language. And so I went back to the U.S. and right before I left D&D, one of the things God told me was, you're not coming back overseas until you learn to love your own people. Because at the time I was actually quite bitter towards the church and I was also just fresh out of high school and I had all these ideas about people. And, you know, I'd gone to PNG and, and three months is not nearly enough time to get over your initial honeymoon culture phase. And so I was just like, man, it's so beautiful here. Like the people, they're so interested in God and they, you know, this is amazing. And God kind of pulled me up short and was just like, you, you got to learn to love your own people before you can come, come back in long-term missions. And so that's what he sent me home with. So I get home and I'm just newly 19 years old and I start working a job at a candy factory. And that's where God started teaching me to love people. I prayed that he would give me opportunities to talk about Jesus with people each day. And he gave me that, which was incredible. Um, But he also gave me all these coworkers who were from entirely different walks of life. They were people who had been to prison for drug dealing and people there was a, a young gal who was a Wiccan who worked across the table from me and we talked almost every day and there were just all these life experiences that I had never encountered coming out of a Christian home and a homeschooler. And um we started learning to hear people's stories, love people, started learning about how complicated life can be, that it's not all black and white, it's not all kind of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. This is how God works, and if people can just like logically understand it, then they'll come to Him. I started learning about how much pain people go through and how much suffering there is in this world. There was one really impactful trip for me where I was visiting a friend. I was on a plane, and on the way coming back, I was sitting next to this young woman. And at the time, I was that obnoxious person who just starts talking with you on the plane, even though you probably just want to relax. And um. (laughs) she and i started talking and we you know our conversation went to faith because that's where they always went for me and she was sharing different parts of her story and one of the things that came up was that she had had an abortion and um you know for me here i am this great little conservative christian kid who's like all full of ideas and all these you know everybody's got a god-shaped hole and they're just waiting to to have him fill it and they're never going to be happy unless they do and and I met this woman and and saw her face and looked at a well of suffering that I had never encountered before in my life, and saw the' this wall of pain that went up when she mentioned it you know, and here I was all set, like "Well, oh, you know it's wrong, I and mean, you got you know. and I was just like, "Whoa, there's something here that I've never seen before and when I went home, I just like collapsed and wept, and I remember. It was one of the the only times I've had like a vision of God, so to speak, and it was it was like the sky opened up, and I saw his heart just pulsing with the pain and the suffering and the beauty and the cries of the world and and I promised him I said i'd never forget I'd never forget what I saw.' So that was for me a really, it was another big turning point for me where I went from just kind of like, oh, everything's all cut and dried and it's easy to explain. And if people just know how logical faith is, they'll, they'll turn their hearts to him and coming to this realization of like the profound suffering that is in life and the deep love that God has for people in those spaces that it is so urgent and so real and so just tangible, just his heart beating for those that he loves. Anyway, so that was that was a really big part of his teaching me how to see people, how to hear people, how to love people well.
0: I love that he wanted you to love your own people.
1: <laughs> I think there's <laughs> so
0: many of us, and this is what I love about Story Night, is that you get a chance to see the real story. And and so many of us fall into the trap of, well, I'm gonna go save the world on my terms or in my way. And I'm just gonna jump to my sort of conclusions. And even if those are correct conclusions, even if even if those sort of opinions or even judgments are based on truth, a lot of times we miss the point of seeing the person. And I can hear it in your voice our listeners can't see your face, but I can see it in your face that, that that really did stick with you and that impacted you. From that pivotal moment, how did that then sort of prepare you to then get you ready to go back to P&G?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was working and my family went through another transition. My dad lost his job down in Southern Oregon and we moved to the Portland area, and my dad got a job with George Fox University, which provided me a unique opportunity as a middle child of a household of five with single income, that his working there provided uh, some tuition remission. And so I was able to save up and pay for part of my schooling, and his work paid for the other part of it, and I was actually able to go to college debt-free, which was a huge deal for me and a huge part of the step towards going in the missions. There was kind of a gap year while I was waiting and I had worked and I had saved up. And just the timing of when I went to college, I had this gap year and I had the travel bug really bad. And so I ended up hiking the Pacific Crest Trail through hiking it from May of um, 2010 into September 2010. And um, again, that was just kind of another part of that chapter of God teaching me how to love and see people and hear their stories. I was One of maybe I think I met two other Christians on the trail that entire time so it was not a lot of fellowship but it was a lot of learning and a lot of really beautiful people that I met and then from there I went straight into college and I knew what I wanted to do I knew I wanted to be a missionary and a bible translator and so I kind of handpicked my degree and just set to it and knocked it out as fast as I could and I had initially gone to college thinking you know I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this knocked out and, and move on to the next step of going into mission. I had no interest in meeting other, other young people. You know, I was 21 as a freshman and, and so I was kind of like, ah, these kids, they don't know what they're doing. But again, God just kind of reined me back and was like, hey, there's things to be learned here. And he brought me to working with urban ministries. So working downtown Portland with folks living out of doors, which was a huge, Huge learning space for me, a season of learning and growing Um, again and just being able to see people and hear their stories. There are so many reasons why people are living out of doors and what what their lives are like and how they've been brought to that space. I ended up leading that as a college ministry and I also ended up meeting some of the most wonderful friends that I have ever had. Just a fantastic group of gals that I uh, roomed with for some time and their friendships have remained with me. During college, there were a couple of things that happened. One, and I know we're wanting to skip to the part where I meet my husband, but there was one thing that happened before that, which was that I did a really stupid thing. I went to hike Mount Hood. I wanted the summit and my crew that I was supposed to hike with uh, stepped out and said they weren't going to hike. The time that I had planned on. And so I decided to hike by myself and I went up and I got stuck in a whiteout and lost and hurt. And uh, I ended up being on the mountain for six days. During that time, four of those days, God did not talk to me and just let me be in silence. Part of that was because right before I went up, I, I didn't ask God for permission because I knew he was going to say no. So I was like, you know what? I'm just doing this. And, um, I'll talk to God about it later. And I'll talk to my dad about it later and, you know, ask for forgiveness rather than permission. And um so there I was, like, wounded and stuck and lost. And God wasn't talking to me. He just shut it all down. So, like, my prayers weren't going anywhere. And I couldn't recall any of the scripture I'd memorized throughout my life. I was just alone and no assurance of his presence, which I had had since I was, like, six years old or younger. And that was terrifying, absolutely terrifying to like have God not talk to me. You know, it's kind of funny because I was in this situation where I should have been afraid of dying. But the only reason I was afraid of dying was because I was like, well, what if he's not there on the other side? Like I've taken for granted that he is. You know, that's that's exactly what came to my
0: mind is how many people would be in that same situation and their their fear would be. I'm alone, I'm lost, I'm without food, I might die. And really yeah. what you're describing has nothing to do with concerns of your physical body and the situation mm-hmm. but but your spiritual health. The trauma for you was I can't hear God. I can't I that relationship that I have seems to have just disappeared. Mm-hmm. But now you said that was four of the six days so I'm hopeful that something changed <laughs> with the other two days.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I had become very reckless in my, in my early twenties there. I'd been a really good kid through high school. Part of that was because my parents, my family was sort of in crisis. I had my oldest sister had developed a mental illness and my second oldest sister was kind of going through her teenage years in the midst of the family crisis and she ended up moving out early and my parents were just in You know, it was, it was chaos. And, and I felt like I need to just step it up and be the perfect kid so that I don't cause more, more drain on their resources and abilities to deal with all of this. And so all through high school, I was this good kid, you know, and, um, did everything right. was super responsible, or at least I thought I was being super responsible. So then in my 20s, I kind of broke away from that. I was reckless. I would, you know, go out night rambling and not come back until four in the morning and just walking through town and climbing things. And I would climb mountains and hike trails and just, um you know, hang out at bonfires for, you know, well into the wee hours of the morning and all this stuff and not tell my parents where I was. And, and my dad had made me promise him that I would not try to climb this mountain alone. Um, because I'd been a little obsessed with it ever since i had hiked the Pacific Crest Trail and gone around the base of it. And I had promised him and that promise just went straight out the window when I had just, I set this in my mind, I'm going to do this. And if nobody's going to do it with me, I'm going to do it alone. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because when I went up there, it was like God literally shut off his inspiration from me. And I realized now, like having gone through that experience, like it wasn't like, there were a lot of things that I took for granted as belonging to me, which were really God's gifting and his love and his presence in my life. Um, just being wood smart, um, being able to take care of myself in the outdoors, um, knowing how to watch the weather, how to like pick up on what's going on around me. I went up that mountain and I took a picture and in my mind's eye, the mountain, it was this beautiful, clear, sunny day, no problem. But on the camera, there is this booming lenticular cloud uh, coming, whipping up around the side of the mountain, which is usually a really good sign that the weather is going to change and that you're going to have some, some heavy bad weather. But I didn't see it. And I just marched right on up that mountain after, you know, I'd been outdoors for six months watching weather patterns in the mountains and the Cascades. I knew what that, what that sign meant and I did not see it. And I just think about like God and what he was teaching me during that time I essentially it was kind of like you know what you don't want me to talk to you I'm not gonna talk to you <laughs> and you can learn what that means anyway so I I was in silence for four days and I was working my way across a sheet of snow trying to get to a place where there wasn't ground um, I had ripped a big uh, tear in my left leg, and I had sprained my ankle on my right leg, Um, I had been attempting to get out of this canyon, and I'd fallen and ended up tearing myself up pretty good, and so I was not able to just walk out, anyway, so I was, I was there, and every day I was just like, okay, God, come on, talk to me, and I was doing all the things, you know, like going through the inventory of, of what I needed to repent of, and, you know, what I needed to say to get him to talk to me. And then, you know, asking the question, like, is there really a God? Like, does he exist? Did I just make that up? Because he was so gone. He was so not there. And that was a really, really terrifying time. And it was the first time in my life where I have cried out, oh, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thursday, so I went up on a Monday. So it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. I had a dream, and it was the first time in any of my dreams that I had seen somebody that actually knew my name and cared about me. And she was like, Mary, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I'm stuck here. Can I use your phone? And she let me use her phone, and I called the police, and they're like, okay, we'll get on that and find you. And I was like, all right. And I talked to my parents, and so I tried talking to them, and it wouldn't go through in my dream, you know. The next day, Friday morning, um, and this is a good Friday. This is the Easter weekend of 2013. The next morning was was Good Friday, and God spoke to me, and He said, "Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear tomorrow." And I remember it was just like the lights turned on again. It was like the world went from black and white to full color again. And I was just like, "You're alive! You talk! You're here!" I was so excited and so just relieved. Like I knew I was going to be okay. I, you know, I had run out of food long. Before that, and I was pretty dehydrated and I was wondering, like, you know, I hadn't seen search planes or heard anything for days. And I was like, you know what? They're not looking for me. But then just like hearing God say that, I was like, all right, I'm going to be alive. I'm going to be okay. And that was the first day I saw search planes flying over. They didn't see me. And then Saturday morning, I got up and packed my stuff and sat in the, on the ridge line that I was on and waited. And I was seeing it as well with my soul. And I heard the blades of the helicopter coming down the canyon. And there was a National Guard helicopter that um, followed up on the lead that search planes had the day before, which is its own story. You want to hear about miracles? My mom's writing a book about it. Um, but anyway, they were following up on the lead that search planes had. And they came straight to me. and said it was the shortest rescue flight they'd ever done. And they were really excited to see me alive because they assumed they were looking for a body. And they lowered a guy on an anchor and they picked me up and went swinging out over the canyon and, and then they flew me to Emmanuel Hospital, which I had to laugh at God's artistry. Emmanuel means God with us. And the nurse that had to put the saline drip in my arm for the next several days, she had the, a tattoo on her arm on her forearm that said charity. And I just had to laugh because like every time she reached over me to change out my IV, I I see this, this uh, reminder, you know, that God is so good, so kind. Anyway, so my family celebrated Easter in the hospital that year, and we got to celebrate the resurrection in a really different way than we ever had before. We were singing all the resurrection <laughs> songs and just weeping for joy, and, you know, just this reminder that God is alive. And that he's a giver of life and that he is powerful to save life. You know, some of the things that God talked with me about, because like on that Friday, he spoke to me that first time. And then the rest of the day we were kind of talking. And one of the things that he reminded me of was just like, you know, this silence that you experience. like, you know, when Jesus is on the cross and he calls out and he says, God, why have you forsaken me? Like, I believe, with all my heart, that he entered into the silence, that he entered into the place where he was alone, like we are alone, and he was in tremendous suffering, as, you know, most humans have never suffered, and he was betrayed, abandoned, and and he was in that space, and he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe Jesus entered into the silence, and being in that space of silence, being in that place, calling out to God with Jesus, you know, why have you forsaken me? I met Jesus there in a different way than I'd ever met him in my life. Up to that point, I think I really just, like I knew Papa God. He was the one I had met as a child, and it wasn't really until that time in my life that year in my college life that I really met Jesus. And that sounds kind of funny because I've known God for like 10 years and I've been a believer and I've given my life to God. But what Jesus is and what he did to save us and the salvation that he has affected, like all of that really came home to me that year.
0: It's amazing to see the way God works and that when he is silent, there's a purpose in his silence. It's not Mm -hmm. out of spite yeah. or lack of love, there's always, always a reason for it. And I would imagine he was preparing you for just so many other things and what was to come in the, yeah. in the next chapters of your life. So having gone through that experience, then you have this incredible Easter celebration. <laughs> I imagine <laughs> your family is just beside themselves celebrating the miracle that that you made it. And where did that take you
1: after that? So after that, there was a lot of convalescing that happened. I was in the hospital for 13 days. And again, just like processing all of that. And the really, the really big thing that kept coming back to me was just this incredible urgency of God's love that he has done this, that he has died and risen again to save us, to save you, to save me, uh, to save every person that I pass on the street, that he loves them that much, that he was there in the silence that he was there in the suffering that he chose that for us and for me it kind of snapped me out of my sort of reckless phase there because i i had been in that phase and and god kind of was just like you know what i gave so much to bring you to me to save your life and not just your life but every person that i'm going to send you to Like, how dare you try to, you know, how dare you throw your life away on this whim for your own glory, for your own desires? And it wasn't that I couldn't, like, go climb mountains and stuff, because I definitely have since then, or go and enjoy the outdoors. It was just God saying, you know what? You hold your life, hold your whole life in the perspective of this love that you have seen, that this is why Jesus did what he did, you know, that he just loves us so much. And for me, to remember that with every person that I meet. And after that, I went back to college. That summer, it was the summer, that I met my husband, Benjamin. I was working at a care home for kids in foster care who are not doing well in the program, um, usually because of mental illness and other issues going on. And I was a night guard, and he was a day person. And we ended up meeting in the transition, the change of the shifts it was a different house than I usually worked. They had changed my shift over last minute. And so I ended up coming in late and then was mad at me, um, my husband, because here I was, you know, waltzing in 15 minutes late to my shift because I had to walk across town because I went to the wrong house. And anyway, so that was, that was how our our relationship started. The first thing he said to me was, what are you like 12? And I told him, yeah, I am 12. And, um, he wrapped up our conversation there with, well, you have my number. So if you're having a hard time staying asleep, you should call. And I thought that was like a pickup line, but Benjamin was entirely oblivious to his own ability to dish out pickup lines. Apparently he was like, what? I just, I meant like you were tired and you should, you know, anyway, a couple days later, I did call him because I had been planning on climbing a mountain and my friend who was going to climb with me, was not able to do so. So then I was all full of energy and nowhere to nowhere to go and nothing to do with it. And so I was like, well, that guy was, he seemed kind of cool and he had a motorcycle. So maybe if I call him up, he'll take me for a ride on his motorcycle. And I lived such a charmed life at that time. Like I had no fears of like being taken advantage of or anything bad happening to me. Like I, I felt like I was entirely invincible. God had protected me and brought me through so much. I was like, he's not going to let me like something crazy happened to me. So I called up Benjamin and asked if he was busy and if he wanted to go climb buildings or do something equally joyful. And he was at the time a bachelor of 17 years. He had been in the military. He was then in the national guard and pursuing, um, officer training and, was actually a stodgy old man, but I didn't know that at the time because he was like, what? You climb buildings? Sure. And he came and climbed a building with me and we went for a ride on his motorcycle and then we talked till two in the morning. And that was our first date, except I tell him it's not a date because he didn't invite me, I invited him. Anyway, that was our first date and it's not like super spiritual. I was entirely mercenary. I had no intention of calling him again or ever seeing him again. But as he dropped me off at my place, he's like, when can I see you again? And two days before all this happened, before I met Benjamin, I had in the depths of my young, single, despairing self, I had been talking to God. And I said, God, you know, I'm I'm really tired of being single. I would really like to have a guy who is strong and good and can come with me into the mission field. And that was my list. And just for all those ladies out there who have lists like make your list thorough. If you want something, ask for it. But um, anyway, so Tuesday rolled around. I'd had several days to think about it. You know, I was like, you know what? Forget this. I'm not interested. I really don't want to have a guy in my life. I'm very happy being single. And so I had my spiel ready for when I saw Benjamin that evening. And I went over there. And he was in the midst of this crisis where he's like, I really need prayer. You know, I'm pursuing officer training and I, I'm just like looking at this and thinking through whether or not to like take the next step. And I was like, Oh man, okay, fine. Like this is maybe some sneaky way to like get in the back door here, but I'm not, I'm not buying it. But I sat down with him and I, and I prayed with him and it was good to pray with him. And then we went for a walk, and I gave him the spiel. You know, I said, you know, I'm not really interested in the relationship, and I'm going into the mission field for the next 25 years, so, you know, see ya. And Benjamin heard me out and thought about it for a couple of seconds, and he goes, hmm, I could support that. And uh, and I was kind of like, no, that's not really how this works, because on our walk he had finished just finished telling me how he was He'd moved to Oregon so he could be closer to where his mom lived and he wanted to be close to family and this is where he was going to live and die. So I was like, okay, yeah, this doesn't compute. You can't just like change your mind on a dime and decide to go into missions. But what I didn't know was that he had spent, you know, the last 17 years of his life kind of messing around, for lack of a better term, and not really knowing where he was going and trying different career paths. He had tried the military. He hadn't, it really hadn't worked out for him. He'd gone into the National Guard. He'd been doing all these different career starts and he was still really just not anywhere yet he's 35 years old now you know and when he heard me saying that with the conviction that i had that this is really what i'm doing for the next 25 plus years for him that was again like that resonance that call and he was like you know that's what i want i want to have that that conviction of like where i'm going and what i'm doing and so that's what was going on inside of him. And he was like, yeah, I could support that. Anyway, so we we started dating and it was pretty turbulent because I was trying to get rid of him and he was hanging on. And we finally got to a point where I have a good friend of mine where we just go out into the wilderness and hike around for a week or so. And while we were out there, God just kind of sat me down. And he goes, why is it so hard for you to believe that I would give you a good thing? You asked me, I answered you not believe me that I would answer with a good gift? And I was kind of like, well, truth be told, no, I don't. I am actually terrified that this is a trap. And that was an eye opener for me that I really didn't trust God with that aspect of my life. So after I came back from that trip, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and give this a try. And I will actually like work for this relationship instead of trying to chase him away. And that started kind of a different chapter in our dating Uh, shortly after that he proposed. And after he asked my dad permission, which was a blessing to me that he did that. And my dad prayed through it and gave him his answer. Anyway, so he asked me to marry him on January 2014 on the New Year's Day. And I said yes. And that was the second time in my life where my entire life has flashed before my eyes was the day he asked me to marry him and I saw my life like what it would be if I said no and what it would be if I said yes and my life if I said no God was kind of like you know it's not bad it's this path you know this path and it's safe and it goes like this and it's this kind of winding flat road that goes off to the side of this mountain and he's like if you say yes you're going up this mountain and it's going to be hard but it's going to be so good and I was like wow well I want to climb the mountain. And so I was like, okay, yes. And um, and that was, that was how I met my husband. We got married May of 2014, the day after I graduated from college. For me, getting to know Ben and having him, his input in my life was a really uh, big paradigm shift for me because he was military. And for him, like God's your commanding officer. If he tells you to do something, why would you question it? You just go. And I was like, okay, you know, like all my life I had had this ongoing dialogue with God, where God's like, hey, you want to do this thing? And I'd be like, oh, you know, I'll think about it for two years. And then here's Benjamin, who's just like, well, God said it, let's do it. And me being like, oh, you know, that actually makes a lot of sense, because he is sort of the king of the universe and the Lord of my life. So why would I dither on something for two years when he's told me what to do? So it kind of changed, changed my life, the way I interact with God. That is such a great
0: way to think about obedience to God, that He's our commanding officer. That's a lot easier to do when you know your commanding officer and you trust your commanding officer. And what a gift that your husband has modeled that kind of obedience and really led your family in that way. I know that the two of you trusted God as He led you to get your master's in linguistics. I know that the two of you trusted him as you moved and settled in Papua New Guinea. And you trusted him as you grew your family and had three children while being full-time missionaries. You've trusted him as you experienced pregnancy and motherhood in a foreign country. And it's been so great hearing the background noises during this time as we get to hear the animals and the children and really get a glimpse into your life. And so as we're wrapping up, I know that there will be somebody listening who feels called to long-term missionary work, but is very uncertain, or maybe even terrified, especially young women who are also trying to start lives as a wife and maybe a mother. And they think, how could I possibly be a full-time missionary during this stage of my life? What words of hope and encouragement would you have for somebody who feels called, but also feels scared?
1: I guess I would say the first thing I would say, is you have no actual control of your life right now, you think you do, but you don't, and life can change so quickly, you know I've known people where one day they're doing life the way they've always done it the next day, they're you know live in a car accident and everything changes, and life is crazy, and you actually don't have any control over where God is going to take you next. what you do have is the ability to respond in obedience to whatever God says. And what you do know is at that junction point, you have a choice. You can say yes and jump off the cliff and go for whatever it is that God has been leaning on your heart to go for. Or you can say no and you'll never know what he would have had in store for you. And truly, I am terrified of ever saying no to God. There have been so many times in my life where I have feared that I made the wrong choice. Specifically when I got married, that was a big one. Because our first year of marriage was terrible. Just for all of you people out there who are wanting to be married or are married and think that you're alone, you're not alone. Marriage is hard. But God was with us. And he continued to lead us and keep his promises. and continued to lead Benjamin even though we were in entirely different places in our faith. And I guess that is what I would share with anybody who's thinking you know oh I always wanted to go into missions or I wonder what that would be like is ask God and if he says go believe him that it will be good that he is in control and there is no other way to know that unless you do it you can you can hang back and be like well you know if I felt safer or if I felt more prepared you never will it's kind of like saying we're ready for kids, right? Anybody who's had kids knows that you're not ready for kids. You never are ready for kids. But when they come, you have what you need each day to love them well. And if you don't have it, you can ask for it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's that's kind of like with missions. You're never just ready to step on the plane and fly to the other side of the world and start life in a country and context that you're not familiar with. But God knows Every step of the way, and he if he tells you to go, like how can you say no? We see God's miracles every day, we see His provision every day, but part of that is because we're in a space that He brought us to, where we are trusting Him every single day, for mm-hmm. every part of our lives, and it's not because we're like super Christians or anything, it's because we said yes when he said, "Go, yeah, and that's it. Yeah, and that's really it.
0: <laughs> you said yes when he said go. I mean, it sounds so simple and and in some ways it is. <laughs> I mean, you can say easier said than done, but but there really is a freedom when you just just do it. You just listen and and if he says wait, you wait and if he says go, you go. So Mary, I just wanted to thank you. You know, it's one thing to say you're a missionary and and this is what you're doing and we can sort of hear about the parts of your life that are so unique and so different, maybe from the life that we have as listeners. But but just to see and, and hear parts of the story of how God took you through different chapters to prepare you for the work he had for you, it's it's always very encouraging and very inspiring to see when God's daughters listen to him and trust him and go forward with what he's saying. And you realize that that was a good decision. It was a good thing to listen to him and to to (laughs) obey him. I think it encourages all of us to do the same. And so to, to close, I was hoping you would pray for the listeners. For all, whether somebody's mission field is across the globe or across the street. I was just hoping you would pray for them. And if you feel like it, I think it would be kind of fun if you don't mind doing maybe a few sentences of the prayer in the language that you're speaking in PNG, just so that all of our listeners can hear it.
1: <laughs> well, we have a well, we're speaking two different languages. We're learning our, our uh, local language, and then we're also learning Talk Pigeon. So I, I can I'll wrap it up with our local language and I can start it out with our Talk Pigeon, and we'll put English in the middle. How's that?
0: That sounds amazing. This will be this will be the most unique prayer we have on the podcast thus far.
1: <laughs> okay, Papa God. You sabelo al geta meris, um, haren, talk Na, you sabelo life plan. You sabelo thinking plan. You sabelo tell Me ask him please, you look him all geta meris. Na, you talk strong da, da blongem. Pray for your Holy Spirit to speak clearly to every woman who is listening, who is wondering what God has for her in her life. I pray that your Holy Spirit would let her know that she is seen, that she is loved, that she is known, and that you are enough. That you are enough to take us wherever it is you ask us to go. You are enough to provide for us and for the ones we love. And that every person's walk is so different. And that in all of it, you are. And you see us, and you are here. I pray that you would help each woman listening to know that, God, that they would know your nearness, that they would know that you are listening to the cry of their heart, and help them, Lord, to be willing to obey when you speak, um, to be willing to take that scary first step of faith and the next and the next and the next, to go where you would have them go, and to get to experience the beautiful roller coaster, the adventure of being in this with you. Papa, Grad, I'm Samantha, and I'm going to watch Nenu, and and I'm going to
0: that was amazing. I love love hearing other languages. Thank you so much for doing that. It's wow. just, it's so neat. Um, I really appreciate it. And Mary, I really appreciate you taking time and figuring this out. And you know, figuring just just the time change and everything. It's it's such a blessing to get to bring your story from Papua New Guinea all the way to our listeners in all all different countries. We've we've had people tune in from all over the globe, which is pretty special. So, thank you, everyone, for listening from wherever you are, and we hope you come back next week for our next story. Goodnight, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com/slash/women.